0: Welcome back to Fintech Insider Focus in association with Visa. In this show, we take a burning question from financial services across the globe and really put it under the microscope with explainers, expert panels and in-depth interviews, all to bring the global community into focus today i am joined again by my fintech insider focus co-host sophie shulman who is the global business development manager over at visa how's it going sophie great to have you on the show again
1: doing well thanks so much david
0: Very good. Uh, What we're going to be doing is on this second part of our focus on the question, is the creator economy being underserved by traditional finance in the US? Really trying to put that under the microscope a little bit more. Uh, If you haven't heard part one of this conversation, go find it wherever you found this podcast and listen to our panel discussion with amazing guests from Rella, and comment sold. We spoke about the use cases for embedded finance in the region, the financial inclusion element. The we talked about tax quite a lot as well, didn't we, Sophie? But uh, and actually, how you need to bring your customers along when you're developing your product. So maybe Sophie, to to recap a little bit, where does Visa fit into the picture when it comes to the U.S. creator economy?
1: So creators play a systemic role in effectively creating culture and driving commerce. We're seeing a huge shift in what is happening around consumer behavior and shopping on platforms. And that's the 50 million plus, I think 50 million is certainly a lowball number, A lot of people are creators without even realizing that they're creators, but 50 million creators at least out there building content and bringing customers along and in many instances, brands. And so Visa has a central role to play in that growth. In addition, these creators are the fastest growing category of small business. And we believe that small businesses are the foundation of of our economy. And so we want to make sure that they are supported along with the consumers and brands that they bring along and can navigate through the various sort of complexities that they will face in payments and beyond as they grow their business.
0: Yeah. I mean, it is a absolutely fascinating space, isn't it? And as you say, I mean, uh, an industry that is sort of underserved in the market isn't it you know where we hear about lots of innovations that are happening for uh, for businesses like for SMEs but but creates really sort of fall between the gap between micro SMEs and, and you know, normal retail accounts, I guess, don't they?
1: Absolutely. There's there's a lot of catching up to do in the, at least the banking ecosystem and how to sort of define a creator. It is really hard to define who a creator is because it could really be anyone and it could sort of be as big or as small as, as your following and your monetization. And so, uh, yet, risk models have not caught up to this, and banking service providers uh, haven't fully wrapped their heads around how to how to treat creators in the same way that small businesses are largely underserved. Frankly.
0: Yeah, well, I think we heard uh, ten thousand followers, and you can probably start going into calling yourself an influencer, can't you? So uh, I'm sh- straight after this. I'm off to uh, start myself an account and uh, go get some uh, go get some influence. I think. But uh, anyway, on in this um, second episode, what we're going to be doing is sitting down with a a great guest, and really, as we talked about that intersection between the creator economy and, and traditional financial services, to really put some of the trends from our previous discussion under the microscope. You'll hear this after a quick short message from our friends at Visa. Visa's fintech fast track program is streamlining the onboarding process for fintechs enabling them to gain access to Visa's powerful capabilities and network. Visa and their enablement partners help fintechs launch and scale cards, virtual credentials and disbursement programs. To learn more visit partner.visa.com.
2: 200 trillion. No, that's not the number of times we've heard the letters AI this year. That's the estimated dollar value of residential property worldwide. The opportunity is massive and the space is ripe for disruption. So why does financial services keep getting mortgage offerings so wrong? Digitizing outdated processes has only led to complex, opaque, and exhausting user journeys that make the prospect of buying a home even scarier. The answer to this problem? Understand your customers' jobs to be done and meet them at their pain points with embedded truly digital solutions. Partner with businesses to simplify and accelerate the home buying process. That's where the future is. Ready to take the first step? Visit 11fs.com ventures and let's get to work. Welcome back to Fintech Insider Focus. I'm David Barton-Grimley, Director of Fintech Strategy at 11FS. And it's great to be joined today by two amazing guests to dive further into the question. Is the creator economy being underserved by traditional finance in the U.S.? I'm delighted to be joined today by Eric Way and Will Kim, co-founders at Carrot Financial. Welcome to the show.
3: Thanks for having us, David. Thanks so much for having us. Really appreciate it.
2: Awesome. For our international audience, can you tell us the elevator pitch on what Carrot Financial is and a bit about yourselves and what was the catalyst for founding it? What's your backstory?
3: Yeah, creators are real businesses. It's easier than ever For people to record themselves and make media and now make a living from it, but they really struggle to receive financial support as businesses. When they try and apply for credit cards, they're often denied because banks have no idea what they are and they themselves don't have the context to know the things that they should be doing. So, my co founder and I, we met over six, seven years ago when I was working at Instagram helping creators build tools to support their businesses, and Will was working on his own venture capital fund. And the two of us saw an opportunity saying, well, hey, if creators are businesses and no one's yet built the business tools to support them, helping them grow, that's something that he and I can
4: both do. I mean, the core thesis from like four or five years ago was just that creators are absolutely businesses, but it felt like a secret. No one seemed to acknowledge that fact. They were just like, this is a fad, it's a trend. Uh, we had a number of investors tell us, you should stay away from this with a 10-foot pole. Like, It's just not worth it. And Eric and I, being foolhardy founders, decided it was still worth it. These so are YouTubers we watched growing up and we wanted to support and figured that credit was one of the first places that we wanted to start attacking.
2: Yeah, so it's incredible. It must just be such a large market when you combine things like YouTube and um, e gaming, for example, which is another massive growth industry. And just on that note, it'd be good to let's start at the foundation. So, how do you both, a carrot, define the creator economy? What is that to you? And what would you say is distinct? from traditional forms of employment and entrepreneurship?
4: Yeah, I think that I would consider anyone a creator if they make any piece of content, even a single piece of content on some kind of digital platform where the cost of production is effectively zero and they are able to then somehow make a living, whether that's through advertising or courses of their own, merchandising um, and even sponsorship deals. In terms of the kind of segmentation, there's a, a broad, broad, broad range right, from the very, very smallest creators all the way up to the biggest, such as Mr. Beast. Um, and we can do- go into more detail there.
3: Well, it's exactly right. We see anybody who's making content online, which now scales in a way that was never possible before, as a creator. And what's really fascinating, the TAM, it's billions of dollars, potentially trillions, according to a recent report by Goldman Sachs. It captures not only people who started by making content and have thought about how to monetize, but more and more, it's also capturing businesses who realize that the next step in marketing is you have to make your own content anyways, Duolingo being an excellent example. What really fascinates Will and myself are the emergence of new entities that it's hard to say who's the dog and who's the tail and what's wagging what. Are they creators who figure out how to monetize with a product? Are they product led companies that just figure out how to do really good marketing via creating content? We see one day in the future, so many people, everyone's going to be making content. You're not even going to think of yourself as a creator anymore, any more so than in 2023, you think of yourself as an internet company.
2: And it sounds like it's just, as you say, that TAM is massive and the banking sector overall is yet to really wrap its head around what this is you know how sustainable is this income what are the cost bases and and everything like that and i suppose that's where you guys come in i suppose uh, the question to you would be what what are those main challenges in finance
3: and banking that you you see from your creators that you can address i think there's two or three main ones i think the first one is similar to other sorts of independent workers creators often make money from a variety of different income sources and Number two, many of those income sources are extremely spiky in a way that many freelancers don't see. You can have creators who might literally make over $100,000 a year in one month and then $10,000 the next. And number three, the credit history and traditional data that a bank would use to underwrite them is often lacking altogether because these folks, they grew up knowing how to make content on YouTube, not knowing how to navigate the traditional financial system. And so we've routinely worked with creators who are making over seven figures a year and don't have any credit history because they've actually never opened a credit card before. And so I'll add, those are three challenges on the financial side. Oh, wow. It's across so many different sources. It's extremely variable. And okay, they don't have the traditional set of metrics we used to underwrite. I'd also add from the creator side, they don't have the same context you'd expect of any other small, medium business in navigating the financial world. They don't even necessarily know that they should be paying taxes. And we've worked with creators who have years of back payments that they haven't made.
4: And I think the only thing I'll add on top of this is that based on this lack of understanding between these two parties, right, everything that the whole foundations and pillars of a traditional SMB banking stack kind of fall apart, right? Even on a pure account basis, right? Like a checkings account without being able to understand where the money is coming from a banker like a blue suit at a bank would be looking at these twitch payments and being like this makes no sense or getting brand deal payouts from paypal and they're like this looks an awful lot like money laundering and when they try and better understand the business in a phone call a lot of these creators have no idea why the banker is asking them and so the whole relationship starts off in a very rocky place um and then when you think about credit where there's an even deeper level of trust required on both sides of this kind of relationship you can see how everything starts to fall apart and so what we're trying to do here at Carrot is trying to bridge those two worlds as effectively as we can.
2: That's so interesting. And where does payments fit into all of this? Because I, I almost imagine that a lot of people are just holding a lot of cash in things like digital wallets, like PayPal, for example, and just try to figure out, okay, what do I do with all this money? As, as you said, Eric, like, can I pay the tax? How much do I owe? I have, I have no idea. I mean, is it very difficult for creators to get to get paid and to figure
4: out then what to do with that cash? I think that the tools are definitely available and. Quite easy to use on a consumer side. But the minute that a creator starts thinking on B2B payment side, they are completely lost at sea. And so we have a number of creators who take consumer payments and pay their contractors through consumer apps, such as Venmo or Cash App or PayPal and not PayPal for business, to be very clear. And so for them, it's all the same. However, you can imagine on the banking side, this also starts to throw a wrench in things.
3: Yeah, I'll share as an example, we work with a top streamer named Alexandra Botez and her sister, Andrea Botez. They are chess streamers who previously, like Alexandra graduated from Stanford, went through Combinator with a startup that was slice speed backed, like very savvy, very smart. And they were accepting and sending payments through PayPal using the consumer functionality. Now of course there's two of them, they're sisters. They stream together. As soon as they tried to spin up a second account, one for Alexandra, one for Andrea, to handle their business and their payments, PayPal marked them as fraud and didn't let them do it. Set an extremely low limit because the inflows and outflows that they're managing are like thousands and thousands of dollars. Enough that it clearly trips some sort of wire, being like, well, if you're a business, like payments to this side, like why aren't you just sending them out via ACH and wire? And it's because in the creator industry, when creators are initiating, receiving those payments, they're most familiar, not with those, but with just what they were using when they were consumers. There's a mismatch there, as well described.
2: Yeah, and it, it sounds like a lot of creators don't necessarily know what to do as well. And I, you know, if they turn to a traditional uh, bricks and mortar bank, let's say, for banking services, they're just not going to get the right kind of advice at the right time. And just spinning that back into carrot a little bit, one of the things that I think you, you guys do really well is help creators with financial literacy and financial advisor. How do you, how do, you do that? How do you think about that?
3: Yeah, it's precisely right. Will and I have always considered, hey, in order to succeed in fintech, there's three really important things, right? Of course, there's how effective you are at underwriting. There's also cost of capital. And what you're touching on, acquisition. Acquisition is gosh darn impossible if your target base doesn't even know why they should use you and the prevailing worries of doing so. When Will and I started Carrot in 2020, we went around creators and asked if they'd be interested in receiving PPP, stimulus money the US government was providing for COVID relief. As you know, it was basically maybe the one time in your life you get a free lunch and not a single creator took it because they thought it was all scam. Imagine if you didn't know what PPV was and an individual comes to you off the street and says, sign here and we'll give you money. So what we found really important is, well, our thesis is everybody has to make content to grow distribution. We make our own content. And the two things, trust and education, we make content, some of it tailored toward trust, where we speak with other creators and host them on podcasts and speak about the creator economy in general and how to be a more successful creator, then on education, we do specific pieces of content too, talking through Creator Finances 101. We've done them in conjunction with companies they know. We've partnered together with LinkedIn and Patreon to do this. And we also put out a lot of content in collaboration with creators discussing through it as well.
4: Yeah. And I think it's really easy to see this kind of lack of education as a an insurmountable challenge or an unworthy challenge. It's like, oh, the market isn't ready. And we talk a lot internally about how actually that challenge is our greatest opportunity. It's precisely that chasm of understanding between a bank and a creator that creates a multi-billion dollar opportunity if we can find a way to bridge that gap. And for us, that has to be the education. And it's just plank by plank, building that out so that creators can ultimately understand the primitives of the tools that they still use on the consumer side and being able to transform that as business tooling as well. Um, for many of these businesses.
2: Yeah, you know, you're meeting your your customers where they are on the channels that they're on, speaking their language. I, I guess it's one of the core tenants of of neobanks. And and I think in some cases, a lot of people forget that the, the modern banking customer, in some senses, speaks a different language. It also sounds listening to you guys speak that it's maybe even a revenue opportunity for you as well to be providing the kind of advice that, that they're just not going to be able to get um, when they get there. But moving forward into the future, this sounds like, okay, you know, you get the data points on the types of business that, that these people are, are doing. That then allows you to do all of the interesting banking things. Well, maybe not the interesting, the boring banking things that that makes money, you know, in the long term. So things, you know, things like credit scoring and lending and deposits and all of that kind of stuff. Um, can you guys talk through how you think about building credit scores with the carrot card?
4: Yeah. I think the, and Eric touched on this briefly in terms of the acquisition and the underwriting and the cost of funds side, but when we think about what makes Carrot unique, the credit building side is actually, in my view, not extremely unique, mostly because what we're doing is just furnishing the data to the bureaus and making sure that they know which creators are paying, what balances and what their utilization rates are, and there's, it's quite vanilla. What is unique, though, is that we underwrite creators not based on FICO and those credit boxes and being extremely strict on these data points that are have very, very little bearing on a creator's true creditworthiness, and instead look at what we see as the kind of biggest factors to determine a creator's business, which is, one, their social stats, which are leading indicators. What's your reach? What's your engagement? What's your growth as a business? And then secondly, the revenue generated from those social channels that we can get through Plaid. And when we link those two data sources together, we should have a 10 times better understanding of a creator's true creditworthiness and their business's performance so that we can underwrite them for 10 times larger credit lines and do that in a way that is safe for our business and actually profitable. And then actually be able to show real credit score data to the bureaus because, hey, this is actually the lines they should be qualified for, and they are paying us effectively month on month. And so when we think about that credit building journey, it really, really starts at the acquisition and underwriting stage.
3: Yeah, I'll add, I think this is part of a larger trend David, you alluded to. In fact, just in the past 10, 15 years, it's become easier than ever to build financial products. And that means you first saw a wave of folks breaking off what a bank would normally do into their own apps, right, for payments, investing, savings, and such. And I think the wave we're in now is folks taking those separate functions, spinning them off separately, the unbundling, if you will, but then also realizing, oh, actually, I can rebundle them, but focused on a specific vertical because it's so much simpler for me to serve them than it was before that it makes economic sense to do so. And when I do focus on this vertical, I can do way better on an underwriting and acquisition basis. Absolutely, and these models are your proprietary models that that you
2: know no one else is, is doing. And once you're able to prove that the underwriting models actually work, then there you go, that is a sustainable business model for you. And I, I completely agree, doubling down on a, on a segment is, is absolutely the way to do that. I want to I want to come back a little bit to the point that was raised earlier about tax. Because that's the thing that catches everybody out all the time, right? Is personal tax returns. I think the U.S. is notorious for this kind of stuff.
3: Are you seeing a lot of content creators actually getting caught out and getting into trouble as a result of that? A hundred percent. As you know, it's one of the two things in life you cannot avoid. <laughs> and what's really tricky for creators, I think two, three things. I think the first one, believe it or not, is even a basic understanding of why do I need to pay tax? What happens if I don't? How much am I even taxed, right? If I'm in this income bracket, oftentimes they don't understand, oh, it's a marginal tax rate, right? Rather than thinking, oh, this higher percentage applies to every single dollar I've made instead of the last bucket. The second thing I'll add is beyond just a basic understanding of, oh, like what tax is, it's the concept that they have to pay a quarterly and they're responsible for making estimated payments to the government because they're not employed by a traditional company that's withholding portions of their paycheck for them. Like that's an extremely foreign concept. And the third I'll add is many times they're not really familiar with the concept of business write-offs and many of the expenses they incur can in fact be written off. If you purchase, for example, a prop for a video, And you use it solely for the video and you're not using it for anything else after, which is most props, you can write that off and they just don't know. So it's a combination of the very basic, like, you need to pay this, you need to do it quarterly. And they're actually not just compliance points for you. There's ways to get potential savings that they're not aware of. I'd like to talk a little bit about the content itself
2: and the value and risk almost that 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 has. You know, If you think about a bank putting out content, the kind of things that you say really, really, really matter. Um, and you can get in a hell of a lot of trouble if you fall foul of regulatory rules. And, you know, in the UK, for example, we have this concept of a politically exposed person. I and mean, there's been lots of controversy in the UK about people um, being unbanked for maybe the things that they've said or the political affiliations that they've had. Very, very, very problematic and you can imagine that there are certain content creators who are maybe saying things that may make them fall foul of something that a bank may or may not like whatever that might be is that something that you
3: pick up on and that you see and and that's an issue for creators to think about so i think there's two points to be considered here the first is well, as a financial provider when we work with someone making content we're not endorsing that content we're simply looking at it as a business, like this is how you make money. And do I have personal opinions on the nature of the content you're making? No, unless of course it affects the business, right? There are certain types of content that traditionally financial industries are much more careful around, for example, adult as well, right? And we know that, and we're similarly much more careful about that from business POV too, but it's not something We see is okay cool well you know this type of content i have personal opinions on we look at it strictly from business pov you know sometimes the content monetized better than others like we'll consider that because it actually affects your business model the second point i'll add is yeah i see it as an evolved form of a question the financial industry has been considered for a long time uh for example you might have heard like frankly just even in the past week the south park creators were in talks with carlisle for a private loan where they're getting debt backed by their TV show and the related intellectual property on South Park Media to refinance like a $600 million facility, right? Or you've probably seen like, there's been a lot of work recently with Blackstone, right? Backing Kevin Meyer and his content plays rolling up Hello Sunshine from Reese Witherspoon or Moonbug, which includes a massive YouTube channel. Like there already is an industry around understanding the value of content and taking into account the risks on... How long will it last? How long will it generate income? What's different is a lot of that content has come from the traditional Hollywood machine. And like the whole point, right? There's a reason why Quibi failed while TikTok succeeded. We're like now so much content is coming from individuals. And we want to take that same apparatus as been built around understanding content from a Hollywood side and figure out how to scale that now for this new quote unquote creator economy.
4: And certainly, I mean, when we think about content and like the kind of, Perhaps what kind of content does well? It's usually edgier content, things that are you know hotter takes than most, and certainly that, that carries risk, right? And so, when in today's culture with cancel culture running, somewhat would say rampant, right? I think it is a risk that we consider as well. However, a lot of the creators that we have seen, it's a moment of cancellation is not what kills them. It's oftentimes how do they bounce back? How do they actually think about following through on promises they might make later on? on educating themselves. And so it hasn't been a major risk. Like oftentimes in the very, very early days, Eric and I would be concerned about like, I guess if this big creator gets canceled, will they lose all their money and no longer spend? And we haven't actually seen that ever in the history of our business for the past like three years.
3: Yeah, I'll add two points onto that. The first one is oftentimes intuitively the best content that well is actually evergreen precisely because the addressable market is so large. And so we see creators who make content around like, hey, like, Here's how the airline system works or like, here's how to optimize which credit cards you use. Often that's not controversial and it actually does really, really well and produces a stream of revenue over time. The second thing we'll add to Will's point, you know, actually every creator, regardless of the edginess of their content, they're always thinking through, gosh, like how long can I make this last? And a question we often get is, well, isn't this temporary? Isn't this just as the winds blow, you do really well for a moment, then you do really badly. And this is what Will alluded to. The best creators are ones who, it doesn't matter how the algorithm changes, they find ways to adapt and stay ahead, either in the types of content that they make or the business models they use to make money from their content. And I add, you know, that question around uncertainty Nothing in life is easy. Like that's equally true of anyone opening up a business. You might do really well and sometimes you might not. It's not unique. Yeah. And,
2: you know, Eric, you mentioned earlier a lot about what you guys are doing is maybe bringing some of the traditional financial instruments that you see in Hollywood into an independent creator who isn't going away. And I'd like to talk a little bit about scale, what scale looks like for an independent creator. You know, they've crossed that Rubicon, their account following is growing, content is monetizing, they're not getting canceled. What, what does scale look like from a lending point of view, for example, what, what type of loan typically would you see a independent content creator need to, need to get or other types of credit facilities, for example?
3: Yeah, so that's where I see from a creator perspective, their needs as a business evolve from not just pure capital, but into basic business operations. And that's similarly where we want to go as well. To clarify, from a capital and credit perspective, say you're a YouTuber, say you're massive and you're making over $10 million a year, which multiple of our clients actually do. From a capital perspective, then, there's only two, three things that are really critical for you. The first is working capital and float. Right as always, the more money you have in the bank, the more you can accelerate new types of ventures that might be a little bit riskier. The more you can immediately put that into kind of content, produce faster. Although he's not one of our clients, Mr. Beast has talked publicly how many times he'll take every dollar he makes from a sponsorship deal on one video, and he would go and put it into the next one. And so, very simply, the faster his working capital cycles are, the faster he can go make more content. Right. The second thing we often see from a credit POV is like, yeah, business capital to build a much larger sort of play. So a great example is Dude Perfect, who's one of the original groups on YouTube to make it big. They recently built like an amusement park, right? Like that's like the multi-franchising spin on IP that you start to do when you're like, oh, like I'm Disney. And you're only going to do that when you're like at a scale where I can access these extremely large chunks of business capital, such that it really makes sense. And finally, the third need for capital that we often see is very much on the personal side, where these creators, like they're trying to get mortgages. And a lot of times they really struggle to get help there. But to my initial framing, the larger point is it actually evolves beyond credit and capital. It evolves to like, literally, I have creators asking me questions like, how does payroll work? (laughs) Like. I actually need to employ people like, are they contractors or are they employees? How do I run payroll? Like, how do I keep track of an organization that's making and spending millions? And the same questions we discussed around creators not having familiar with traditional tools that equally applies when they're large too. And so we see what happens, one of two cases. One, many of these creators level up and they gain the sophistication to learn how to manage themselves. Or number two, they'll bring in COOs who come from the creator industry. But in either case, they come to us and they're like, gosh, like we have employees now. Like we need employee cards. We need these more sophisticated features that at carrier we want to grow into and support as well.
4: Yeah, and I think the scale, like when you're thinking about how big do these loans actually get? I mean, the lines that we can see would be up to like, six um, figures. And I think this is just on a 30-day basis, right? And so oftentimes, well, we, when we think about these creators who are thinking about hyperscale, about how do I get to that next level of business? How do I actually build out a brand for my business that can actually create real equity value from that content that I've been feeding for the past several years? These would be like million-dollar investments that they're oftentimes also looking to investors, like equity investors for. And then some of them are also looking for debt folks to then pile on top as well. It's an interesting model that I think in the past five years we've seen kind of explode. And actually, it's, people are still trying to figure out what's the right structure to how to value a true creator business. And we've seen a number of these high-profile deals like Mr. Beast's business um, that have taken a gander at
2: that. It's so fascinating. It sounds like these businesses are also growing at such a phenomenal pace. I mean, the parallel maybe that you can draw us to the startup industry, where people are growing fast but also spending fast. And the business operations are lagging way behind where they are in the, in the realities of the, of the business. And, and just on that note, where do both of you see the content economy, content creators evolving in the future? What, what's next? Is it more, you know, diversification into brands, equity investments? Where are they looking for growth?
4: Eric and I like to joke about this a lot, or we go back and forth. But we do think that content is taking over the world. And Eric's been hinting at this a number of times throughout this call. Uh, it's not about where creators will go, it's about where the rest of the world will go. We actually believe that right now, all creators are businesses. Uh, and secondly, we believe in the future, all businesses will have to be creators of some fashion. And so for us, what's exciting about where this industry is moving is that we see more and more businesses that are relying on content for distribution, more and more businesses being started by creators because they own the distribution. And when we think about where that world is then heading, they need to have an S&B stack that actually understands them and their business model based on content which is very very different from the traditional businesses that might be selling goods or services and so when we think about what we're building here at carrot it's really this one-stop shop for these creator businesses and we believe that the tam should be unlimited over the next five to ten years as we see more smbs converting themselves into true creators
2: and on that note what's next for you guys at carrot it's been a few short years amazing growth our
3: focus has always been on helping creators run their business. And we started with credit as a wedge because it worked, as I alluded to before. We explored PPP loans. We explored many different types of services and products to break into the creator industry. And none of them hit that sweet spot between urgent enough that they would care beyond the daily operations of trying to make content and something that from our side would also build that brand because creators would share it with each other like a credit card like they make content about us not because we pay them but because they think it's cool that finally builds our underwriting model too and so we've like seen the success of our wedge and for us it's all about what are the next products we build and there the calculus isn't so much do creators need this they do Any potential offering you can think of in the business financial industry, they need help with. The question is more, what do we think we can sequence next that can scale in a way that continues to help creators receive the individualized support they want? That also builds a really good, strong, sustainable business model for us. And so Will and I are extremely focused now on the wedge is great. Let's figure out what we want to go and build next. Awesome! Excited to see you guys
2: grow over the next few years. So to wrap up, let's just talk about content in general. You know, as we're talking here, we're creating content. So what advice would you give? One piece of advice from from each of you, for our listeners who I'm sure a lot of them are content creators
3: themselves, for how to do it better? I've interviewed over 100 creators on the Carrot podcast. And many folks don't realize podcasts aren't just great opportunities for marketing and content creation in a way. They're also really good for just customer due diligence and research, especially if your podcast guest is the type of client you want to serve. You got to spend an hour with them understanding how they think and what they need. And the number one recurring thing I've heard across creators, they all find ways to motivate themselves, and keep going and believing in the good and potential of what they do, when maybe in the short term, the numbers and the metrics aren't there. I think this applies, frankly, not just to content, but to anyone who's trying to start something new. The metrics we look for regarding success, which for a creator might be, yeah, the number of views you get, the number of subscribers. There's a lot of metrics we look for as a startup too, revenue, users. And sometimes it's lagging. Sometimes it's really variable. You have to find a way to motivate yourself to continue believing in yourself when you're not seeing that. And many times it comes down to, why are you doing this in the first place? Like, What is the mission, the core fundamental nugget of how you believe the world works and what you can add to it that hasn't yet been manifested, that you think is worth going for even if you haven't yet seen that progress?
4: Yeah, I honestly love that, Eric. I think from my POV, a lot of times what I've seen with these creators is the ones who succeed are the ones who love their fan base and say, hey, I'm actually thinking about my fan base first and foremost. I've known folks who have had millions of subscribers, honestly, sometimes struggling to pay rent because they won't take brand deals that they believe are polluting the world or are diluting the value of their brand or might be taking advantage of the fans that they have worked so hard to build up over time. And so I think, and you, you, made, you made this point earlier, David, around how there's such a deep overlap in terms of startup philosophy and creator philosophy, and we absolutely believe that. And it comes back to just know your users and love your users and actually build for your users. And for a lot of our creators that we see have the most success in the long term, it's that kind of laser focus on just, hey, what do my actual fan base want and need? And then how do I build a business around that need whether that is a merchandising line or some kind of brand of my own, or just partnering up with other brands that I deeply believe in and can find real sponsorship deals for. And ultimately, the CPMs there, and the value that I generate from that would be mo- like actually massive. And so it comes right back to understanding your users.
2: Yeah, I so relate to what you've both been saying. In, invest in your customers and just keep generating content. Just keep going. Um, sometimes I feel like that way about myself as well. Um, just keep creating and keep positive. And, and on that note, um, that wraps up this edition of Fintech Insider Focus in association with Visa. Thank you so much for joining both of you. Where can people find out more about you and Carrot?
3: If you're on Instagram, you can find us at TriCarrot. That's T-R-Y-K-A-R-A-T. If you're on the internet, we're at www.tricarrot.com dot com. If you're on YouTube, you can find our podcast similarly at TriCarrot. If you're on TikTok, we are Tri Carrot Official, slightly different flavor. And finally, you can follow me personally on Instagram at Eric T. Way. That's E-R-I-C-T-W-A-Y
4: or on LinkedIn. And you can find me at W-I-L-L-I-K-I-N and as in Nancy.
3: On Instagram and under his name on
4: LinkedIn.
2: Awesome. And you can find me on LinkedIn at DavidBG. Thanks for listening, everyone. This episode also concludes our first around-the-world tour with Fintech Insider Focus. We hope you all enjoyed it. Let us know where you think we should cover next. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to Fintech Insider and please leave us a review. It helps us to make it better
4: and helps others to find the show. Thanks very much and goodbye. Goodbye.